On March 9, 1862, the Monitor in Virginia, formerly the Merrimack, steamed into history with dramatic developments in naval technology. And though the newness of the ironclad stole the stage that day, neither was able to penetrate the armor of the other. The irony was that mankind's effort to develop ways to destroy itself was thwarted by his own ingenuity, if only for a few hours. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Phil Russman. Our guest tonight is Dr. James Jenke from Dakota State University, author and expert on naval activity during the Civil War. Speaking with Jim will be our guest host, Dr. John Willis, professor at University of the South, author and expert on reconstruction following the Civil War. Coming up in a moment, Jim Jenke. efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm John Willis. With me today is Dr. Jim Jackie. Thank you for joining us, Jim. Glad to be here, John. Well, I'm a professional historian, but you're not, not to, not to pull rank or anything, but... <laughs> I'm always curious what makes people interested in my subject in history, and uh, you seem to be fascinated with the Civil War. How did that come to be? Okay. Yes, you're right. I'm not a professional historian. My area is finance here at the university. But I've always been interested in history, uh, all kinds of history, and especially American history. And the Civil War itself is this incredible, defining event in American history. Uh, there was a lot leading up to it, and it was sort of like the boiling point. And it decided a lot of important questions. It uh, it to decide what the structure of the United States government would be and what the United States themselves would be and itself would be. Uh, it just uh, left a legacy that continues on. And in fact, 
it's really hard to understand, I think, some of the things that are going on in the United States even today if you're not aware of the Civil War and the legacy that left and the impact on the northern part of the country, the impact on the southern part of the country. Uh, it's just been a fascinating uh, event to me. But also, uh, besides uh, teaching finance, I'm also a novelist. Okay. I write westerns. Uh, one of which had some civil war in it. And so I'm interested in stories. And the civil war, in addition to being a defining event, is also this incredible story. Uh, when you think about what the stakes were, um, life and death, that always makes for the most intense kind of stories, but not just the life and death of, of individuals. And the carnage in the civil war was just incredible. But uh, the life and death of nations. Uh, would there be a Confederate States of America? Would there be a United States of America? What what would happen? So it's just been a, uh, something I've just not been able to stay away at all. Uh, the 19th century uh, U.S. history has been uh, fascinating to me that way, in particular the Civil War. It's just uh, riveting is the best way I can put it. Well, we're, we're on the same page with that. Uh, okay. I think you're right. The American Civil War does still have legacies that we can see at work around us today in mm-hmm. politics and and in society. And as a matter of fact, these issues about the American Civil War, they, they still draw in readers and viewers and, and listeners in other countries, too, don't they? Oh, yes, very much. Uh, in fact, this is one of the things I discovered at the, the websites that I maintain. The um, uh, Talk Radio, for example, has several URLs on it to several of the sites I maintain. And I've been doing this, mm, well, I must have started about 95 and one of the things that impressed me when I started getting contact from different people is that people in other parts of the world are also fascinated with the American Civil War. Uh, I don't think Americans in general have as much interest in the history of other countries as they have in us. And in fact, some people in other countries um, know quite a bit about the American Civil War. They're, in fact, reenacting groups in other countries, like Great Britain, France, Germany. They have reenactors reenacting the American Civil War, and I've been in contact with a number of these, and actually I've made some friends that way. Uh, this one fellow from Australia, particularly, that uh, we've corresponded with for quite a while, and in fact, uh, he actually came to visit the United States last year, and uh, he stayed at my house. Hmm. It's just been incredible to, to meet people like that. I think the interest is growing, too, uh, around the world. And the World Wide Web, is, it's more than just a name or a cliché. It has brought a lot of people together to study these things. Yes, very much, very much. Uh, uh, even here in the United States, too, I think the... Well, you would think that uh, given the time that's passed, we would lose some interest, but I think it is growing here as well as uh, around the world. More books, uh, for example, in my study of navies, uh, there'd be a time when I think, okay, now I think I've gotten most of the books I'm interested in getting, and every year more books come out. They've found some other diary or another memoir, and it's just uh, uh, wonderful stuff. And so it's sort of like, well, i got to have that too. Well, this is a mixed blessing for historians, um, and especially when you try to find a place to put all those books in it. Yes. They're all over the place. Um, tell us some more about your interest in the Navy. There you are in, in South Dakota. You're landlocked. Yes. Is studying the Navy a way to get away from that, or (laughs) or do you have something in your background that brings you to these sea stories? Well, I'm not really sure where it comes from. I've always liked sea stories. I even remember as a a young boy, 
I like to read sea stories. So I've been interested in oceans. I've been interested in sailing ships and things. Uh, the interest in the Civil War navies didn't come right away. I just got more and more interested in the Civil War and uh, then discovered this other aspect to it that I just hadn't heard much about, that there was uh, a variety of activities going on in the navies, various kinds of innovations. The, the Navy, let's say the Union Navy, played a, a strategic role that generally was uh, kind of ignored usually because it didn't have the same kind of all visibility that the, the land action did, the armies, the, uh, the huge forces fighting together, the incredible carnage and such. So a lot of what the Navy did was just kind of invisible to most people. I think that's true. Why do you think we don't hear much about it? Because the, the jobs that were given to both navies, Union and Confederate, were pretty substantial. And you do have thousands of people involved in these activities. Why, why do you think that this side of the Civil War story has been neglected? Well, I think one reason is it's simply that just were fewer people in the Navy than in the armies. Um, the, um, oh, the, the Union Army must have had like two million men by the time they got done, whereas the Union Navy was nowhere near that big, and the Confederate Navy was even smaller. Right. And then, frankly, there just weren't that many people killed in naval action. When you think about the carnage in the Civil War entirely, I mean, the estimates vary. So maybe it's like 650,000 killed. Well, the Navy lost less than 2,000 in the entire war. And that just doesn't have the same visibility when you talk about over half a million people being killed. I think that's a lot of it. I think it also may have something to do with the lack of impact that naval operations had directly on civilians, which meant that there were not that many people writing about it, not that many newspaper reports during the war about it. Well, I think you put that question well, that saying that there wasn't a direct impact. Uh, you know, armies didn't occupy their town, their towns. I mean, our navies didn't occupy their towns. Uh, it was much more indirect. When you talk about the blockade, for example, that did have an impact on them, but it wasn't, you know, okay, well, here's that ship that did that to me. Uh, there was just a slow, uh, a slow strangulation of the economy, and that's a little harder to identify with. Let's set up the situation as it existed at the beginning of the war uh, with these two navies. Uh, and I think using that term may be an exaggeration for the Confederate forces, but, but let's talk about how they were disposed and the numbers and the strengths of these two groups okay. in 1861. Well, the, the, the um, kind of relative positions of the navies, I think, reflected a lot of the relative positions and just uh, a lot of aspects of the North versus the South in terms of the well, the population, the resources, and such. The um, industrial north more or less kept all the ships. Now you hear about uh, various uh, people having decided, let's say, you're in the Union Army or Navy, and your state secedes. Do you go south? Do you go north? Um, well, the ships uh, didn't really have that kind of choice. That uh, even officers, Navy officers, who are going to go south, usually said, "Well, until I resign." I'm going to get this ship back to the port it belongs in. So the Union uh, Navy wound up with virtually all the ships. But they didn't have very many, uh, fewer than 100. And most of those were on foreign stations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one account I've seen had uh, that Lincoln, when he came to office, found that he inherited 42 ships in commission, but that most of them were patrolling distant waters. I guess many of them were patrolling to stop the slave trade. Something yes. less than a dozen warships, I think, at the beginning of the war were available to, to start that blockade.
decade that some people were thinking about. That sounds about right. I think uh, in terms of ships and commission, it was probably more like, say, like 90, but um, yeah, a few dozen is what they had available. And given what they were going to try to do, they had enormous challenges. But if they only had, say, like a few dozen ships, the South had even fewer than that. They virtually had no, no Navy at all. And another important aspect about that is that the, the North had the capacity to actually build a Navy. Uh, they had the resources to, to spend the money. They had the, the um, manufacturing facilities. They had the steel industry and such, whereas the South had almost none of that. I guess the only thing the Confederacy had at the beginning was that the Norfolk Naval Guard fell into their laps. Right. That was a very important event for them. There was an attempt on the part of the Union Navy to destroy that at the very beginning. In fact, that, that whole episode of how the Confederates got hold of that Norfolk Navy Yard makes a fascinating story all by itself. And Actually, I've seen the event in, in movies and books and such. It's just one of those examples of, of one little part of it making just a fascinating story by itself. But yes, they did get that Navy Yard. And they got a number of things with it. They got probably the finest dry dock in the country. They got over like a thousand cannons. And they also got a number of ships, some of which had been scuttled. But uh, that can always be undone. You can always. Well, of course, that made it very important to protect that, didn't it? Oh, yes. So it was unfortunate for the Union that the, the South actually got that. But that was a real boon for them. But it does show you how how dependent the South was on something like that, that they really had little other uh, facility to do that kind of thing, whereas the North had, had plenty of opportunity. And the, the um, Union Navy uh, rose, or grew rapidly, whereas the, uh, the Southern Navy really had to struggle. That was always their, their situation. I uh, uh, should mention the, uh, <clears throat> the sailors in the, the Navy tended to stay in the Union Navy. So you wound up with a situation where many, many Navy officers were going south. Yeah, something like a quarter of them, I think. Well, it was quite a large number. hundreds, hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. So you wound up with uh, <coughs> a south that had no ships, really, lots of naval officers, each of whom wanted to command a ship, and not many sailors. So if you take a look at the way uh, the Confederacy, for example, manned their their warships. Many times, there was a lot of army people on board. Mm -hmm. uh, they um, they just didn't have enough sailors, so the sailors tended to stay north. Many of the officers went south. I think that reflects back on what you said a little earlier about how dominant the merchant marine was in the north, mm -hmm. and how active uh, the northern states had been right. in flying the seas already. They had a good supply of seamen there for use in the, either the merchant or the military ships. But there were, as you say, there were far more officers leaving the Union Navy than there were than there were sailors leaving it. Right. Talk about what the Union Navy was trying to do at the beginning. They had a strategy. Uh, they they had an assignment that came up. Uh, how would you how would you summarize what the Union Navy was charged to do from the beginning of the war? Okay. <clears throat> I, I think you probably have to have in mind kind of like a a general goal that two sides would have that the Union wanted the South, I mean, yeah, the Union wanted the South to stay in the Union, and they would have to reimpose their control, so they would have to be on the offense. The South just wanted to be left alone, 
and they would be on the defense. And offense always takes a greater struggle than the defense part. Now, the, the North came up with a certain strategy. One was to blockade the South, to keep anything from getting out and anything from getting in. Uh, originally, when this idea was proposed, an awful lot of people scoffed at that, and they said, well, that's ridiculous. That'll take years to have an impact. Uh, we just want to get this over with. But I think, say, like Bull Run, I think uh, that really woke up a lot of people and realized this is going to take years. Well, the strategy of the blockade, in fact, was developed by uh, General Winfield Scott. Uh, yes. Virginian by birth, who was head of the armies, and his idea was that you would be able to bring the South back, as you're talking about rebuilding the Union, they'd be able to do that back a lot easier if they didn't invade the South, and his notion was, to use that blockade to, to squeeze them back into loyalty, if you will. And when they right. talked about it, they called it Scott's anaconda plan, like the huge yep. snake yeah. squeezing. I think uh, it's interesting, too, that uh, he was viewed as somebody way beyond his time, and yet he was very prescient about what it would really take. Because uh, what he had proposed actually was, was what they had to actually do. Mm-hmm. So, so that was one main part of it, blockade the South. Uh, and that was going to be a big challenge. Another thing they were going to do was to use the rivers to divide and conquer the South. When you think about, say, the choices, well, we can take an army and march across country and fight battle after battle, or we could get on a boat and float down the river. This seemed like uh, great opportunities, and in fact, particularly the Mississippi was a big goal, because if the Union would take control of the Mississippi in a way that would divide very much the South and also give um, uh, uh, free access to the ocean by northern states through the Mississippi. It was the nation's main highway, wasn't it? Oh, very much. In ways we forget now. Uh, back in the mid-19th uh, century, the rivers were very important. In fact, if you think about, say, uh, steamboats, they were a huge industry before the Civil War, and the Civil War tended to direct that along with came the railroads and that really did it then. So well, we yes, focus, very, you're right. We focus on the railroads, which were in most cases simply lines connecting up the rivers. Mm-hmm. Often east west lines connecting up north south or, or other sorts of directional. Uh, the way we cross rivers on bridges nowadays we just take for granted, but uh, there weren't that many back then. So they were going to blockade the south from the outside, divide it along those rivers from the inside. Mm-hmm. There were some other things they they had to do. Uh, one of the techniques that the Confederates had in mind was to raid uh, northern commerce. And that drew quite an effort from the Union Navy to find these commerce raiders. So that was another, say, um, duty they had. They would rather not have had to do that. It was sort of like, well, the blockade we want to do and and make use of the rivers, but we're just going to have to go after these commerce raiders, but that's just to... Uh, to fight off something that the Confederates are doing, not that it's going to lead to a increase in what uh, we want to accomplish. Well, this is a fascinating story, Jim. Let's pick up with this issue of the blockade and commerce raiders when we come back. Okay, very good. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 